Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, When the Trite is Also True. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 13th, 2013. The Baptism of Jesus. Over the Christmas break, I started reading David Foster Wallace's novel, Infinite Jest. The crazy complexity of the 1,100-page story makes it hard to describe. In Infinite Jest, time is subsidized by corporations, such as the Year of the Tuck's Medicated Pad. A terrorist group from Quebec called the Wheelchair Assassins wants to attack the United States with a film that's so powerfully entertaining that whoever saw it wanted nothing else ever in life but to see it again, and then again, and so on. The novel explores numerous aspects of our culture's zeitgeist, national character, information overload, suicide, and the addiction to drugs, entertainment, and pleasure. Many passages make you laugh out loud. Others stymie you. Single paragraphs run on for pages, and the infamous 388 footnotes themselves can also have footnotes. But most of all, says Wallace's biographer D.T. Max, Infinite Jest is a story of people in pain. It has a very quiet but very sturdy and constant tragic undercurrent, says novelist Dave Eggers, that concerns a people who are completely lost, who are lost within their families, and lost within their nation, and lost within their time, and who only want some sort of direction or purpose or sense of community or love. In fact, Wallace often said that he intended his fiction to explore what it means to live a life of human wholeness. Joelle Van Dyke, for example, also known as Madame Psychosis, is a member of the Union of the Hideously and Improbably Deformed, whose members wear veils to hide their shame. A failed suicide attempt lands her in Ennett House, a drug and alcohol halfway house. There she meets Don Gately, a former criminal recovering addict and current staffer at Ennett House. Gately's also the only person in a cast of 200 plus characters who's found a way beyond psychic carnage to genuine healing, but not in a way that you would expect. Gately is committed to the Alcoholics Anonymous program, but it drives him crazy. He hates the corny slogans and saccharine grins and hideous coffee, the limply improbable cliché drivel, the goopy sentiment, the cultish brainwashy elements, and the smug psycho babbly jargon. But if you hang in there, as the cliché goes, and keep coming, as another cliche goes, Gately found you discover, you discover that the thing actually does seem to work, does keep you substance free, 
It's improbable and shocking. Gately discovered that the trite can be true. How do trite things get to be true, he asked. Why is the truth usually not just uninteresting, but anti-interesting? Because every one of the seminal little mini-epiphanies you have in early AA is always polyesterishly banal. But experiencing the true within the trite is only for people who out of desperation learn to keep it simple and ask for help. With his own 30 years of clinical depression, drug addiction, psychiatric hospitalizations, drug regimens, and AA experience, the novel tracks David Foster Wallace's real-life movement from irony to sincerity. The addicts at Ennett House distrust pretension. They detest any effort to impress or attempt to perform. They can smell a fake a mile away. He says, the narrator says, Gately's found it's got to be the truth is the thing. The thing is, it has to be the truth to really go over here. It can't be a calculated crowd pleaser. And it has to be the truth unslanted, unfortified, and maximally unironic. An ironist in a Boston AA meeting is a witch in church. Irony-free zone. Same with sly, disingenuous, manipulative pseudo-sincerity. Sincerity with an ulterior motive is something these tough, ravaged people know and fear. All of them train to remember the coyly sincere, ironic, self-presenting fortifications that they had had to construct in order to carry on out there. In the baptism of Jesus, we encounter three of the most trivialized words in the English language that are nevertheless true. God loves you. Or in the words of Isaiah's poetry for this week, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. After living in total obscurity for 30 years, Jesus left his family and joined the movement of his eccentric cousin, John. He might have even submitted himself to John as a disciple to a mentor. This much is clear. John the baptizer was a prophet of radical descent. So much so that his detractors said he had a demon. Whereas his father was a priest in the Jerusalem temple, John pled the comforts and corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert. There he dressed in animal skins and ate insects and wild honey. Then comes a shock. Jesus asks to be baptized by John. With some important stylistic differences, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' baptism by John. In Luke, we read, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, 
Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. After his radical rupture with his family in conventional society by identifying with the desert troublemaker to the point of submitting to his baptism, Jesus' own family tried to apprehend him. The villagers of his hometown of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. Why did Jesus ask for John's baptism of repentance? The earliest believers asked this question because in Matthew's Gospel, John the baptizer tried to stop Jesus. Why do you come to me? I need to be baptized by you. In other words, Jesus insists, John insists that Jesus was not getting baptized for his own sins. Crossan argues that there was an acute embarrassment about Jesus' baptism on the part of the Gospel writers. Even a hundred years after the event, Jesus' baptism made some Christians feel uneasy. In the non-canonical Gospel of the Hebrews, for example, Jesus denies that he needs to repent. He seems to get baptized to please his mother. We get clues to this question if we backtrack to the beginning. Matthew's genealogy includes 42 men, but also four women with unsavory histories. Tamar was widowed twice, then became a victim of incest when her father-in-law Judah abused her as a prostitute. Rahab was a foreigner and a whore who protected the Hebrew spies by lying. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow, while Bathsheba was the object of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up. These four women are part of Jesus' family of origin. The story continues when pagan magi worship the baby Jesus. Jesus then escapes to Egypt, the symbolic enemy of Israel, and finds refuge there. At the baptismal scene, there are soldiers and tax collectors of the Roman oppressors. Jesus' baptism inaugurated his public ministry by identifying with the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. He allied himself with the faults and failures, the pains and problems of all the broken people who had flocked to the Jordan River. By wading into the waters with them, he took his place beside us and among us. Not long into his public mission, the sanctimonious religious leaders complained that Jesus was a friend of gluttons and sinners. They were right. With his baptism, Jesus openly and decisively stands with us in our brokenness. Jesus' baptismal solidarity with broken people was vividly confirmed by God's affirmation and empowerment. Still wet with water after his cousin had plunged him beneath the Jordan River, Jesus heard a voice and saw a vision. 
the declaration of God the Father that Jesus was his beloved Son, and the descent of God the Spirit in the form of a dove. The vision and the voice punctuated the baptismal event. They signaled the meaning, the message, and the mission of Jesus as he went public after 30 years of invisibility. That by the power of the Spirit, the Son of God embodied his Father's unconditional love of all people everywhere. God loves me. He knows my name. Yes, in the words of Don Gately, it's improbable and shocking. But as Gately learned, if you're willing to move from clever sophistication to genuine sincerity, quote, you're encouraged to keep saying stuff like this until you start to believe it. The Baptism of Jesus For books this week, I review a title by Catherine Boo, that's B-O-O. The title is called Behind the Beautiful Forevers, Life, Death, and Hope in a Mumbai Undercity. New York, Random House, 2012, 257 pages. Across the street from Mumbai's glistening international airport, encircled by five luxury hotels, and next to a vast pool of sewage, is a tiny patch of a slum called Anawadi. Because of its location, it's magnificently positioned for a trafficker in rich people's garbage. And if you live in Anawadi, that's what you do. You collect sort and sell garbage. 8,000 tons a day of Mumbai's garbage. Anawadi's business is part of the 85% of India's economy that's underground and off the books. In an odd way, it's a boomtown byproduct of India's burgeoning economy. After you read Catherine Boo's book about Anawadi, you'll understand it less as a slum than a horrific place where fellow human beings live. Boo, Boo tells Anawadi's story by focusing on several people who represent the main ways that these slum dwellers try to transcend their miserable conditions. Abdul, a teenager and the eldest son of a Muslim family of 11 people, is a middleman who buys garbage from the pickers and sells it to the recyclers. Asha, a 40-year-old mother, exploits the rampant political corruption by becoming a slum lord or civic boss who mediates local problems. She's savvy and knows how to game the system. Her daughter, Manju, is a college graduate and an example of meritocratic India and finally, Sunil is 12 years old, a scavenger who longs for what his comrades call the big enjoy. Anawadi has its own competitive hierarchies, envies, and rivalries. Almost none of these stories end well.
Abdul's Muslim fan family faces Hindu resentments. The government is dysfunctional. The police are violent extortionists. The courts corrupt. Most anything can be bought for a price. Despair is palpable, which is why women end their lives with rat poison or self-immolation. Others sell their bodies. In 2008, the global economic crisis and a terrorist incident in Mumbai meant fewer rich tourists and thus less garbage. The airport authorities threatened to bulldoze Anawadi for the cause of more economic growth. Catherine Boo, who spent four years living in Anawadi to research this book, won a Pulitzer Prize for earlier work on, a, on group homes for the mentally retarded. In November 12, Behind the Beautiful Forevers won the National Book Award. It was a fully worthy selection. For movies this week, I review a title from 2011. It's called Take Me Home. Dreams die hard for both Tom and Claire, who live in New York City. They are two people in pain. He's a Wall Street failure who longs to be a photographer, but drives an illegal taxi just to survive. He also just got evicted from his apartment. Claire caught her husband with a girl named Candy, then got a call from her mom that her dad in California had a heart attack. Claire and Tom become an unlikely pair when she asks him to drive her to California to see her dad, whom she hasn't seen in 20 years. They skimp and scam their way from coast to coast, wary at first, but then, yes, falling in love. This is a fun romantic comedy with a few twists and turns fit for Friday night film fluff, and with some good reminders about the journey to home and just what that does and does not mean. The title, Take Me Home. And finally this week, we've posted a favorite poem of mine by May Sarton. May Sarton lived from 1912 to 1995. The title of the poem, Now I Become Myself. Now I become myself. It's taken time, many years in places. I have been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces, run madly as if time were there, terribly old, crying in a warning. Hurry, you will be dead before. What? Before you reach the morning? Or the end of the poem is clear? Or love safe in the walled city? Now to stand still. To be here. Feel my own weight and density. The black shadow on the paper is my hand. The shadow of a word as thought shapes the shaper falls heavy on the page is heard. All fuses now falls into place from wish to action, word to silence. My work, my love, my time, 
My face gathered into one intense gesture of growing like a plant. As slowly as the ripening fruit, fertile, detached, and always spent, falls but does not exhaust the root, so all the poem is can give, grows in me to become the song, made so and rooted so by love. Now there is time, and time is young. Oh, in this single hour I love all of myself and do not move. I, the pursued, who madly ran, stand still, stand still, and stop the sun. May Sarton, now I become myself. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January the 13th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.